The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, and this is the Women in Media podcast. I am thrilled to have probably the most educated woman that I know on the podcast today, (laughs) Dr. Pamela Palmiter. She's a Mi'kmaq citizen of the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. She's based here in Takaranto. She is a lawyer, 23 years strong. She's a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson. If I have the math right, four university degrees, a master's and doctorate in law from Dal, specializing in indigenous and constitutional law. So many awards, I could not possibly go through them right now. So many honors for her work in social justice advocacy on behalf of First Nations people, and especially indigenous women and children, including the very important work related to murdered and missing indigenous women. Dr. Pam Palmiter, welcome to the Women in Media podcast. Are you in Toronto right now? I am. I am for sure in rainy Toronto, at least today. But it's been good weather, so I'm not going to complain. Right. And we need this because of the wildfire. So all good. Yes. Uh, I do want to touch on climate today because, I mean, Mm -hmm. of the many things you stand for, uh, there's a conversation there. Let's just start with what you're up to. You're on sabbatical right now. I am, uh, which is great because it just means you don't have to teach classes. You don't have to go to meetings. And you know how meetings can literally eat up all of your time. So I get to do research and publish and, of course, work on all of my social media stuff, which is really my favorite. And is there a specific project that you're working on during this time or it's everything? If I was going to say the things I'm focused on right now, murdered and missing Indigenous women and the kind of subcategory about membership in First Nations, it's called tribal enrollment in the U.S., but registration under the Indian Act as an Indian, it has for centuries excluded Native women and kids, like they've always disproportionately been impacted. So we've been trying piece by piece to kind of get women back in their communities, which leads to things like uh, avoiding murder to missing Indigenous women because the Indian Act is one of the root causes of murder to missing. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I wrote this down as like a starting point for us today. Mm -hmm. Um, On your website, Big Bold Letters, Educating the resistance. Would you say that that's your purpose? Yes, I would have to say that's my purpose. And some people might think that that's like a radical or subversive or bad thing. But it really is about resisting state or corporate or even societal racism, misogyny, people who are against human rights, people who want to destroy the environment, people who don't care about social inequities or poverty in society. That's what we're resisting and trying to advocate for a much better society for everybody, including all living things on the planet. When did this social activism start for you? Take me back to you being a kid. When did you know that you needed to step into your voice? Well, it's not like I had a choice. I come from a really huge family of eight sisters and three brothers, and they, the majority of them were older than me and born in that era of social activism. So basically, I spent my childhood going to community meetings, marches, rallies, protests, being part of a whole bunch of different Native organizations. And so I actually never knew anything different. When I was young, I didn't really understand what was going on. Why are people yelling and screaming and crying? Like, what's going on here? I could just be playing with my Barbie dolls. What's going on here? But over time, I came to understand, or at least see 
that something important's going on here. I don't know what it is, but over time I'll understand. So I've never actually known any other life thanks to my brothers and sisters. But what was one of those defining moments where you turned that point and you were like, I need to use my voice? You know, I think it was maybe grade two-ish, could be grade two, grade three. And our teachers had, the teacher had taught us that um, there was no such thing as treaties. They were just kind of like this metaphorical, ideological thing. They weren't legal documents. And that Indians had died off a long time ago. And I was like, wait a second. I'm I'm Indian, Mi'kmaq. And so I went home and I told my brother, who is now passed away, and he was so enraged, like beyond enraged. He gave me the whole history of treaties and land rights and everything else. And of course, I didn't understand it all, but I knew he was angry. Yeah. What I didn't know was that the next day he was going to come to my school, walk me into class, and before classes started told the teacher in front of all of the kids, of course, that I was never going to stand up for O Canada again until our treaties were respected. We gave, they gave our land back and uh, stopped teaching this crap. Do you remember feeling like excited about your brother being there? Or do you remember, because like, you know, when you're a kid, right, there, there's also the element of like, what are my friends going to think of me? What was going through your head in that moment? Uh, it was horribly embarrassing. As a kid, I didn't know what he was talking about. I just figured all of the kids were going to make fun of me, and they did. And I figured the teacher would be giving me the evil eye for the rest of my life, and she did. And so I didn't really understand what that was about. So I went home, and I told my other brother, you know what? I, I feel kind of ashamed about what happened. I don't know what happened. And then he got mad at me. He's like, what do you mean, be ashamed? You should be proud of who you are. And then I've got, you know, I've got the five-day lecture about what it means to be Mi'kmaq and how awesome we are and we're not going anywhere and we're in this righteous fight and so you know it was kind of both and I didn't really get it until I started attending like marches and rallies and people were drumming and all of our aunties and grannies were out there and everybody was just so proud and loving I was like yeah okay I see what he means this is this is a this is a good thing to be. So we're going to fast forward a little bit here. There's lots of life in between there. But, you know, you and I met through uh, your work with SiriusXM. You were doing, um, I think it was a weekly um, appearance on Canada Talks. You're still doing that, right? Yep, yep. Yep. And that was to cover, you know, the Indigenous issues of the moment. Then we had just rebranded um, the Indigenous channel on SiriusXM to be the Indigiverse. And we were looking to, you know, integrate some new voices into what we were doing. And we, we started this series called Turtle Island Talks. Are you still doing that, by the way? Yes, I am. Amazing. Oh, it makes me so happy. Oh, I love it. You were so awesome to work with, too, by you the way. You were, too. It's, you love it when there's all these women together, you know, you and Kim and everybody just hanging around and figuring how the script's going to go and yeah. everything's chill and just, it just natural. I love it. I love it. I miss you too, of course. Oh, thank you. That's, I mean, that's so sweet. But, um, you know, at the time, like that was, that was a big thing um, for that channel to step into a, a place where Indigenous people could be proud of the content on that channel, you know, and I think it's definitely there. So congrats to you and team and still going strong. But that sort of brings me to like your, I guess, public life. You know, I met you on screen. <laughs> we haven't met in person yet. We're going to make that happen. Yes, um, yeah. But I met you on screen as, you know, someone who who is a voice that is invited onto all these radio shows um, to share your truth and to advocate and to share activism. 
I love this from all your social media. Maybe the thesis here is decolonization in action, right? (laughs) Um, So when did you know that you needed to step into public life in advocacy and activism? I don't think it was anything that I planned or thought about, you know, because I was doing all my community advocacy, being a lawyer, uh, then a professor. But I was very frustrated when I was watching the media because I'm a political junkie. And you see media asking politicians like prime ministers and ministers questions And they have the same answer. It doesn't matter what the question is. They're just reading from their speaking notes. It could be a yes or no question. And they're just saying the same thing. And I was like, how frustrating that no one just gives an answer. And then I I saw the same thing in uh, mainstream media for the Native community. So if they interviewed a chief or if they interviewed the Assembly of First Nations, Assembly of First Nations wanted to be nice and you know, credit the federal government instead of saying, hello, major crisis going on. So I was just so frustrated. So I thought, well, I don't know what to do. I'm going to write a little blog and just get all my opinions out there and just keep doing that. And I just kept, it was very cathartic. Um, And then media started asking me my opinion on things. And I was like, oh, wow, I have access to Canadians. That's what we need, access to Canadians, because we can't do it all by ourselves, right? Like, there's so many Canadians who, if they knew better, they would do better and they would support us. And that's that's when I thought, okay, everything's going to be public, everything. I just want to point this out, too. If you want to visit some of... Pam's writing. Um, you can find a couple of, you know, sections on her website for this stuff. Warrior Life would be one of the collections, if I have that right, and Indigenous Nationhood. Yeah, yeah. So on my website, pampalmeter.com, you couldn't get easier. Every single thing I've ever published in my life, it could <laughs> yeah. be op-eds, it could be books, it could be, chat, you know, journal articles, everything is on there. All of my podcasts, my YouTube, I mean, basically, it's a one-stop shop to know more if you want to know more. And I will link to all of these things in the episode notes. So please visit, especially if you want to be friggin' inspired. How <laughs> how did um, your early, I guess, participation in some of these radio shows and, and media in general go? Because most of the time in media, as you and I both know, we've talked about this in the past, it's mostly, you know, white people in mainstream media and you're trying to bring Indigenous perspective to the table. Yeah, so here's the thing. Obviously, mainly white people, but you know, it's almost always old white men. Yes. And it doesn't matter what the media is talking about. It could be talking about like women's abortions and it's old white men. It could be talking about, you know, native culture and it's old white men. And I was like, what the heck? Um, so th- that was important. And in the indigenous community, when the mainstream media did talk to us, it was almost always some elected official who may or may not know the issue in detail, right? Because they're elected politicians, they can't know everything. Yeah. Or they were like a national indigenous organization that would just say all of the speaking notes like the federal government. And I was like, boy, that's frustrating. They need to talk to more women and they need to talk to more native women because we've got some kick-ass experience and knowledge and experts out there. So... To me, that was really important to have a voice represented and someone who would answer the question. So I said in my mind, I am never going to do speaking notes. I, When they ask me a question, I'm going to give yes or no, and here's the reason why. And they can like it, or I guess my mom would say, like it or lump it. I guess that's a maritime <laughs> saying, but that was my mission. And, you know, there was a lot of response to that. People were like, Holy cow, Pam, you got to calm down. You got to stop looking so angry. You were being told to calm down. Mm-hmm. 
mm, no. yeah, I got to calm down. And I was like, great, I'm just going to ramp it up. <laughs> and, and because here's the thing. If I can't show how much I care about my people, who else is going to? Because it's not the weather. You can't simply go on mainstream media and go, uh, yes, now back to murder to missing Indigenous women and girls. We found more... Uh, women who are missing and now the weather as if (laughs) it's just a fact that you report it's kind of like you know justin trudeau yes i agree genocide happened anyway let's talk about the economy and that's frustrating so i thought i'm always just going to be honest and it's and it's not always going to have i don't know fluff around it it's not always going to be fancy that's just the way i'm going to be and people can like it or lump it Can you tell me about an early experience in media that was good and why and an early experience in media that was bad and why? A really good one was when Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, asked to interview me because it's APTN, right? It's it's like media by Native people for Native people. And to me, that was like, that's the big honor. I was just so, so, so excited. Unfortunately, the camera guy filmed me with a big window behind me. And my hair was <laughs> in every different direction. And when I got home, my kids were like, Mom, you look like some kind of witch on TV. And I was like, no. <laughs> so that was kind of good and bad all in one package. Oh, you're funny that you even brought that up. But okay. Yeah. And in terms of bad, I'd have to say when mainstream media would do a surprise. So they would ask to interview me about something, uh, a certain subject, murder to missing, for example. Okay. And then I get there and they want to talk about, you know, some chief's finances. And I'm like, what? And then they would have me paired with some super racist person as if that gives them some kind of expertise. I mean, to have balance, you don't balance someone who is a lawyer with someone who's just a hateful racist. Like, that, that's not balance. Have at least two lawyers up there to argue the law. So I was like, that, that's kind of sucky. It hasn't happened a lot. But the couple of times that it has happened, I just thought in my mind, I always need to prepare for everything anything can happen like literally anything so yeah have you experienced i I mean you stand up for all of these issues but have you personally experienced racism in a way that you would feel comfortable talking about yeah so there's some stuff um i i wouldn't talk about because they say not to tease the animals yeah yeah so i'm i i don't do that I, i make it my mission i don't respond to trolls or haters or threats I block, delete, block, delete, block, delete. Because user 12345, who has no followers, yeah. why on earth would I retweet something, even if it was awful, and say, look at how racist this guy is. I've just given him my entire social media audience, first of all. So now he has a platform. People might follow him just to trash him, but he gains followers. The other thing is, is why would I want to hurt all the people who are following me for insight and analysis and calls to action yes. and just spread the racism and the misogyny. Like to me, that's never made sense. I know people do that and I'm not knocking them, but that's not your thing. I do not engage. I don't mind hard questions. I don't even mind racist questions in live events or in media. I get lots of those. I want to be the one to answer them. But in terms of like threats or how they talk about your appearance or your body or, you know, all these other terrible things. 
don't engage, block, delete is the best thing about social media. So most of it's been through a screen then, is what your response tells me. Most of it. Okay. Some of it not. Some of it's been in person in certain areas of the country, which, you know, I won't point out, but I'm sure you can imagine <laughs> oh, which yeah. province is the worst. Yeah. And so I just, I've learned my lesson that now in those kind of uncertain circumstances, I always have buddies with me. And something yeah. tells me that like your experience with mainstream e- media, maybe early on, led you to create your own content the way that you do now. So how many podcasts <laughs> are we at right now? Okay, tell me about them. Tell me about them. Okay, so Warrior Life Podcast was my first one. It was my baby. And the reason why it was created is exactly what you said. I was being interviewed lots in mainstream media, and I'm thankful for that because it's an audience. But you know what it's like. You might get two minutes right? Or you might even get five if it's like a really long segment. You can't provide all the context and all the things that people need to know to really understand it. So I thought, I'm going to do that at my Warrior Life podcast. I wasn't really sure. So I experimented with a couple things. And I was like, you know what? I do enough talking. I want to lift up the voices of other people doing amazing things that might not be in the media. So land defenders, water protectors, elders who are manning the front lines, people who are teaching culture and language, who are really warrior and powerful, but mainstream media might not actually go to them to talk about these things. And so I just, I've got, I don't know how many episodes now, 150, 170 of all different people, land defenders, water protectors, men, women, youth, uh, people who are hereditary leaders, elected leaders, like you name it. And it has been such a learning process for me. It's like another entire education. So that's my baby. And then I was getting all these comments from people going, oh, I love your podcast, man. I wish there was something like that for kids. And I was like, I'm going to research and see if there are other native podcasts for kids. No native podcasts for kids. There's youth, but nothing for small kids so that they can understand, hey, what's mom and dad talking about when they talk about reconciliation? What's Orange Shirt Day? Are we just doing this for fun? So in a very age appropriate, like I have an early childhood educator that helps advise me, talk about really hard issues, but fun issues and the ways that Indigenous peoples are cool and telling the stories I heard when I was a kid. And so then I thought, well, you know what? Here's another undercovered issue. All of the ways in which there are individual cops and institutions that protect one another. You know, the thin blue line. And I don't mean protect as in protect from harm because we should, they should definitely do that. But I mean, the criminal cops, the cops that commit sexual violence against their own members, members of the public. And I thought, we need to start shining a light on this for accountability purposes. Uh, And so I uh, have been researching cops and testifying about cops for a long time. So I created Criminals on Patrol because, (laughs) you know, the acronym is COP. And I thought that was pretty smart. (laughs) Who knows? No, I love it. It's so smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one, the trailer's out and the first episode's going to be out in a matter of days. The first season's going to be about the RCMP because it's RCMP 150. And then the other one that I'm working on is one that I've wanted to do for decades, ever since I was a kid, and it's called Paranative. And my whole goal with that is to decolonize the paranormal. You know how there's all these ghost shows or, you know, trying to track or hunt down killer Bigfoots and they've got all their rifles and stuff. And I'm like, dude, Bigfoot actually exists. Why are you coming in here like a colonizer trying to discover Bigfoot and then kill him? Like, so it's really a decolonial approach to the paranormal. And I looked around. I didn't see anybody doing that. So I thought, 
that's going to be my next podcast, working on it now. But it's also, I'm going to try to make it a TV series to kind of have something different from all the ghost hunting shows. Because you shouldn't also be blaming us for every haunted house. I mean, how many movies have you seen where, <laughs> oh, it's an old Indian burial ground and, the, you know, these demons are coming to haunt us? No, that doesn't happen. And I've spent my life doing primarily investigatory, research-based stuff, like nonfiction, you know? So this is like real stuff that's happening. And this whole paranative thing is also real. It's all about our stories, the experiences we've had, how it's portrayed in a stereotypical way, and what the science is behind it, and all of that other stuff. So I'm still doing advocacy in terms of promoting Native voices, still decolonizing, but I'm doing it in a way that... My father wanted me to do. He wanted me to grow up and become a scientist so I could uncover all of these truths in our native communities and make sure people understood it so they would stop trying to hunt down every mermaid and Bigfoot and thing that they thought of. I bet you your brother right now, if he saw all the work that you're doing, would be just in awe from that, you know, that story you told me about him coming to your school when you were young. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. You know what? He didn't even remember it. So they've been in advocacy so much and they've, you know, drugged me through all of this stuff so much that they don't even remember half of the things. And you know how something can really impact you? But maybe to him that that wasn't impactful. That was just another teacher he had to tell off because he'd also come to my school and be upset at the gym teacher who said we had to have two pairs of sneakers. We were poor. Like I was lucky to have one pair of sneakers. I wasn't going to have an indoor pair. So he just did so much stuff like that he didn't remember. And so when I when I told him, he's like, oh. I don't even remember any of that stuff. (laughs) So it's good storytelling, too. So it is Indigenous History Month. And I mean, I've wanted to have you on this podcast for a long time. But one thing specifically for me right now is using my platform and space to, I think, open uh, the minds of people who don't pay attention to any Indigenous issues at all and have no Mm -hmm. idea where to start if they do want to, right? So right now, what are some of the topics that you think, you know, mainstream media, people like me, should be talking about more? What's something that's like kind of occupying your brain space right now a lot? Well, I think most people are aware of the wildfires all across Canada and all of the scientific information that it's way too early for these kind of wildfires, that they've burned more than we have in past years. So we know there's climate change. So people are kind of tuned into that, figuring, you know, what's happening. But what I want them to really pay attention to is where are the majority of these wildfires? Where are these wildfires starting? Which communities disproportionately have to be relocated? or lose everything. And we know that climate change hits Native people first and foremost, especially those, uh, like if it's melting ice, it's in the Arctic for the Inuit. But for these wildfires, it's primarily those in remote and rural areas that are being impacted. And what happens? These people go and live in hotels. Sometimes, especially for flooding, they're in hotels for like two years. And everyone in the media forgets about it. No one really thinks about, okay, this is a single mom with six kids living in a hotel room. Like that's that's beyond, I don't know how, how they would even do that, right? I only had two kids and I can't imagine just being stuck in a hotel room. So it's those kinds of things that I really want people to pay attention to and what they can do about it, right? Pay attention to climate change because if you pay attention to climate change and you take action, you are de facto helping Native people. Because the two things go together, ecocide and genocide of Native people. 
they're tied together. You know, you can't have one without the other. So that's a really big one in the media. Another one that really doesn't get uh, enough attention is that we still have water issues in First Nations and First Nations in particular. There are some in some Inuit communities. But the fact that the numbers that are presented, so a government official will come on the media and say, we've reduced long-term water advisories by 50, and now there's only, say, 60 left. And they forget to tell people that they're only talking about long-term water advisories, and they're only talking about that moment in time. Many of them go back into a long-term water advisory the next day because all they did was truck in water, but they didn't fix the system. And then they forget about all the short-term water advisories that uh, are on for six months, then they're off for a week, and then they're on for six months. That's a long-term water advisory, but there's a little space in between, so technically they can say, oh, it wasn't long-term, and then even worse, First Nations without any running water. They're not even counted in the number because they don't have running water. They might have to uh, have water shipped in or they might have an old cistern that is infected with you name it and they don't count those because they're not technically running water systems. So there's all these really horrible ways, you know, the devil in the details. There's a lot of that in what's being presented in mainstream media. So I just ask people, if you hear a number like that, really try as best you can to look behind it. See what a Native organization is saying. See what Native advocates are saying. Because we always link to numbers and science and facts and stats. We're never just spewing rhetoric, right? You know, I've made my social media. You can find a fact or a stat on everything that I talk about. And that's important. So you can say the next time a government official says, we want your support in the election, you might want to tell your MP or MPP, you know what, what are you going to do about water? What are you going to do about these wildfires? Are you rebuilding these houses for these people? How are you giving family supports? All of those things are life and death. It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with Lion's Mane Mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to organictraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. Hello, I'm Wendy Mesley. There you are. A lot of people have wondered what happened to you. I could say the same about you, Maureen Holloway. Well, here we are, a few years after we left our previous jobs. We've been busy. 
we have a podcast. I know you're thinking who doesn't, but ours is really good. It's called Women of Ill Repute. We don't just talk to women, though. Just the most interesting people you'd ever want to meet. Artists, musicians, comedians, doctors, activists, convicts, writers, sex workers. Drop some names. Jan Arden, Pamela Anderson, Bruce Coburn, Samantha Irby, Louise Penny, Marilyn Dennis, Colin Mockery. We laugh, we cry, sometimes we argue. Come and find us. Our website is womenofillrepute.com. Or try Apple, Spotify, and all the podcast places. So now you know what happened to us, Women of Ill Repute. When you look at how those things, like with climate change specifically, affect the average person and how it will affect us more, yes, it's really just coming back down to the idea that it disproportionately affects our Native communities. Yeah. Yeah. We are like the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Uh, what happens to us will eventually happen to everyone else. So when uh, different police forces were driving us out of the city, they're called starlight tours and leaving us there to die in the winter or sexually violating our women and girls for many, many, many decades. No one, no one talked about it. It got a little bit of media. But now with the class action where they've been doing that to their own female police officers for yes. decades, yep. causing significant harm. Now it's like, oh, man. Now they're taking it seriously. Exactly. And then all of the other women that they do it to outside of the police forces. And then you're like, OK, so it's true. If you allow these human rights violations to happen to one group. You might not be in that group, might not affect you right now, but guaranteed it's going to affect you or your daughter, or your granddaughter. And we don't want these things to happen. Like We don't want this to happen to non-Native people. We want to prevent what's been happening to us to happen to anyone else. And the best way to do that is we partner our resources, partner our media, partner our research, you know, partner financial supports, uh, you know, um, Really look at how you can support Indigenous content creators, people who are in the media, supporting podcasts, supporting YouTube videos, TikToks, all of those things. And some of them don't cost any money. So for people without money, you can like, comment, share, retweet, yep. repost. That's huge. But you can also have financial support. There's always something within your sphere of influence that you can do to make a difference. You can't make a difference on everything. And you don't have to, but don't let that be a, oh, well, it's so overwhelming, I can't do anything. Yeah, you can. You can log on to the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society website right now that's headed by Dr. Cindy Blackstock, who's advocating for First Nation Kids in Care. Send them a donation. She's got seven free ways to help First Nation Kids in Care. She's got template letters that you can send to officials. There's just so many things you can do if you can get past the, it's overwhelming, I don't even know where to start. Yes. And you know what's interesting too, I think the the ways that you are creating content right now, I'm going to use an example here of Canada Land, right? Like a, a very popular podcast and podcast network now. There are independent creators all over this country as well doing something similar to what Canada Land aims to do. You're one of those people, right? <laughs> and just because you can't, you know, click donate on say your um, Patreon, you have a Patreon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like just because you can't afford that, sharing something from your social media is yes. the way, is 100% the way. And think about it, when you share it to your sphere of people, I'm going to use the example right now of my beautiful girlfriends from high school, my best friends. I might be a little more dialed into a conversation like we're having right now than they are, but they follow me and my socials. And then they see yes. me sharing stories like this. And that's my whole goal at the end of a conversation like this is to like, let's amplify this conversation. Let's get people who don't 
ever think about it thinking about it. That's it, right? And using it education-wise. Like, you don't know how many profs or K-12 to teachers I've talked to that's like, I use your Warrior Kids podcast in my classes so that I'm not talking about the Indigenous story. Uh, it's an Indigenous voice yes. talking about the Indigenous story. And same with professors. It's like, oh, we didn't know what was happening in Copland. Uh, so yeah. here's a podcast. And it's easy. You can just click. It's like a ready-made resource. But at the same time, for people and primarily organizations and institutions that do have budgets... Pay Native people for their labor. Yeah. So if you're a union and you're asking someone to come in and give training, they should get paid at the very same expert level as other expert trainers do or like public speaking, you know? So if there's an organization paying 40 grand for some public speaker, why are you only offering a hundred bucks to the native speaker when you know that, that you are talking about equal qualifications and experience and things like that? So I know individuals can't always do that, but organizations, organizations, we looking at you, especially organizations who want our support. Think about all the unions who want native support, all the environmental groups who want native support, all the corporations who want uh, native support so that they can say, oh, yes, we're working with native people. Well, there's money to be shared there. Oh, yeah. When you were growing up, was there um, a person that you would say mentored you in this space or someone you really looked up to and admired? Just talking about, you know, female camaraderie. Yeah. So obviously all my sisters, because they are like so amazing and they, they have the softer side where my brother might say, what? Oh, I can't believe you think this and blah, blah, blah. And here's all the reasons why you should agree with me, you know? And so our family was just nonstop uh, battling politics family. But the sis sisters have the softer side, you know? So, oh, here's how you paint. Here's how you learn to paint. And you just spend hours and hours talking and letting all of that, uh, the stress of politics and advocacy go. And then I'd say my mom, because uh, she was a single mom for a lot of like... And how many siblings you had? Oh, my goodness. 13 or 14 of us, but I'm in the youngest pack. So I'm like the oldest of the three youngest. And so by that time, most of the brothers and sisters had moved out. So she's a single mom. She's trying to make ends meet. Uh, she's teaching us how to protect ourselves, how to, you know, keep going, get an education, don't let people take advantage of you. So all of her strength, no matter what happened to her, I feel like she kind of gave me that strength. And then outside of my family, you know, uh, Sandra Lovelace is from Tobik uh, First Nation. She was a senator and she just recently retired. She took Canada all the way to the United Nations to prove that Canada is violating our human rights by kicking First Nation women and kids out of their communities, right? Because of her, like thousands of people got reinstated to their communities. And then you go to Cher McIver. She's, you know, from Lower Nicolaban. She sued Canada, I don't know, like three trial, appeal, you know, Supreme Court of Canada. She's taken Canada to the UN so many times. She's literally the grandmother of tens of thousands of people who got welcomed back, like my kids, got our welcome back because of all of her work that she did. So it's people like that. Ellen Gabriel, she was this, this young woman who was the chosen representative at Oka uh, when the military moved in and tried to quash the Mohawks who were pretending their sacred burial grounds from a golf course. <laughs> she was chosen by the politicians, the traditional leaders, the community to be the intermediary, the spokesperson. 
And I have looked up to her ever since. So there's like a million Native women like that. I look at Ken Who's Manual from Chiquetmeg and Molly Wickham Slado from Wet'suwet'en, where they're living on the land, they're protecting the land, they're getting arrested, they're putting their lives on the line and freedom on the line for us. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to lift their voices and try to send financial support their way and get recognition for them because they are my heroes. They're the ones who, when people say, don't you find it depressing that it's just taking so long? And it's like, no, what would be depressing is if there's no more land defenders, no more water protectors, and there's no one speaking up for us. That's when we're in trouble. But so long as they're out there... I've got hope. I know we can get this done. What about bringing up your kids now? Moving from, you know, who you looked up to, to how your kids are maybe looking up to you. How have you confronted the things you talk about and create uh, with your kids? How have you confronted the tough conversations? Tell me. Well, I pretty much initiated them like my family did to me. So they've known nothing else since birth. They've been going to marches, rallies, protests, community meetings, political meetings. I have been talking to them about every section of the Indian Act, sections of the Constitution. I mean, these kids could go in and teach any class about Native issues and they'd be able to... It's just by osmosis, right? Because I never talked about anything else. I call them kids, but my eldest... Mitch is 30 and my youngest Jim is 29 and he just had a baby so I just had my first grandbaby oh and his name is Cebu which means river in Mi'kmaq. Congratulations. Yeah 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 so he's going to get the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to get the same thing. Come on I'm strapping you on my back and you're going with uh, Migiju granny to whichever rally we're headed to. Now I think some of the traditions um, from Indigenous communities are so interesting and so beautiful. Maybe you could share with my audience, you might not know anything about these things, um, something around maybe, you know, bringing a new child into the world. Oh my gosh, it's it's so amazing because you have to be there. And I don't know if you call it a tradition or just part of our culture, but you have to be there for mom. Primarily, you know, you got to make sure that she's eating well and you got to make sure that she's taken care of. Like from one matriarch to the other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm literally just cooking as much as I can, cleaning her house when she doesn't feel good so that she's good when baby comes into the world. And of course, one of the first faces that baby has to see is their grandmother, Migiju, and the songs that we sing to them and the burning of sweetgrass, doing all of those cleansing ceremonies and things like that and making sure that the place that he goes home to when mom and baby get to go home has all of those medicines, you know, sage, tobacco, sweetgrass, cedar, all of those things, all of them. He's got his little moccasins uh, and just stuff like that. And then, of course, he's got to come to our powwows. He's got to come to our community. He's got to, you know, be shared around with all the family members. Like he's got to breathe their breath and see their eyes and do all of these great things. And I'm just I, I love that uh, about our communities. Like my kids uh, slept with me in my bed. They... They were always passed around from all of my brothers and sisters. Like They just grew up in a huge family. I wanted to have a huge family. It didn't work out that way. I only had two boys. But I want they can still be part of this huge family by going back to our reserve all the time and being part of, you know, whether it's powwow or whether it's hunting and fishing or learning from the uncles or cousins or whoever it is. Are they all still in Eel River Bar? So two of my brothers have passed away. Two of my sisters have passed away. They all had bad health. 
Um, two of my sisters still live on the res, and all my cousins and uncles and things like that. My mom just lives uh, just maybe five minutes away from the res. I've got some other brothers and sisters that live off the res, but everybody's pretty much in New Brunswick, and most of them, I'd say, are on the North Shore, which is where my reserve is, right tip New Brunswick. Um, but some are in different places, but they pretty much stayed in the Maritimes. Like, that was always what I was going to do, too. I don't know how, actually, I'm in Toronto right I know. Now, but that being said... <laughs> well, this is leading me to my next question. Um, like, if I remember correctly, don't you always take about a month and, and go out east? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, last summer, my youngest son and I, we got on our motorcycles. <laughs> and so cool. And we drove... Yeah, we drove all the way to the Maritimes to do the tour of where, like, visit as many people as possible all over New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, er everywhere in the Maritimes. And the funny thing was, is I didn't have a touring bike. So he had a bigger bike, a KLR 650. So it's not, it's it's a dual sport, like an adventure bike. So it could do the trip. I was on my dirt bike. Oh my so God. it was on Honda CRF 300L, which is primarily for dirt biking, which is what we love doing. But it was the only motorcycle I had. So I was like, I don't know. I see Itchy Boots on YouTube traveling all over the world in her Honda CRF 300L. So I'm going to do it. I just packed my bags on it and it did it. My trusty old dirt bike did it. That's amazing. Do you have a trip planned this summer? Well, no, because baby mm -hmm. uh, has just been born. So he wouldn't want to leave baby here. for that long. And he's here too. Yeah. So he, he lives in Toronto with me, my other son's back home in the Maritime. So I'm probably going to do a trip... You know, I, I do multiple trips back home all the time, but while I'm on sabbatical, I'll probably take more this summer, um, go home for powwow and go home to see my mom and all my friends and th things like that. But I, too, don't want to be away from my grandbaby for too long because in my eyes, he needs me. <laughs> <laughs> when is powwow at the same time every year? Yeah. So powwow this year, I think, is mid-August. Um, and there was a couple of years during the pandemic where we didn't travel. Uh, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go to powwow because in a lot of native communities, there tends to be a lot of people with health compromised conditions. So it didn't want to spread that stuff around. But that's a pretty good powwow. I guess what I'm asking is, does it like revolve around like solstice or anything like that? Yeah, um, it used to be that I used to have to choose between that powwow because Six Nations has one of the biggest, best powwows Ever. I mean, they have like 200 vendors, food and clothes. Like it is, it's a one-stop shop for a weekend. But it used to be at the same time, I think second or third week of July and Eel River Bars was at the same time, but they've changed their times. So I can go to both if I want to. Well, we always go to multiple powwows. We do the powwow trail, but yeah, so hopefully um, there's no conflicts. Can't get to them all, right? But summer is powwow season. So that's like my favorite time of year because we're eating and laughing and joking around and decompressing from everything that's happening, knowing that powwow season's over, we're, we're still back at it. Like we still have a lot of work to do to try to protect people. If we look at mentorship, even in the way of your work, um, just like in the other direction, you being like, you know, top of your empire, we'll call it your media empire. Are you working with any young people in that way? So I try to have young people as part of, like, bring them on the podcast and help 
help them understand, you know, here's how it works and you can do your own podcast too. Or when I go into schools, it's like you, you can start your own podcast, you know, as long as you have your parents permission, here's the easy ways, the cheap ways, the no expense ways to do these things. You can exercise your voice in a different, like trying to show them they can write blogs or they can have podcasts, or they can do YouTube videos, or on TikTok. And you know what? Now, they've all surpassed me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't need to tell them anything. They're like, oh, well, are you on TikTok? And I'm like, what's TikTok? And they're like, check it out. And then I'm like, all oh, these kids are dancing. I can't dance on TikTok. But you eventually find your way. So that's ultimately how I did my social media. My kids, since I was very young, were like, mom, you got to have a Facebook account. Well, what's Facebook? And then they set me up, and they're like, this is what you do on Facebook. Okay. They, they promised me that I could reach a larger audience if I went on social media. And you did. So every time a new social media thing came out, they signed me up and they said, okay, this is what you do on Facebook, but you don't do that on LinkedIn. But here's what you do on TikTok, but you don't do that on Insta. So they have been my social media advisors. And now I honestly, I learn more from this younger generation, to be honest, than I have to offer them. Uh, although social media is a really good way to connect with people and help answer questions and things like that. And obviously, when you're in a university, you're mentoring young students and things like that, too. I did want to ask you today if um, if you're OK with talking about this. You know, um, the last time that you and I talked, it was still Ryerson University. And as and as someone who is active with Toronto Metropolitan University as a professor, I would just love to hear like your thoughts behind the way that all of this happened, if you're comfortable. Here's what I love about that, because the media asked me a bazillion questions when it first started. And I kept saying, actually, this is an initiative of the students and the students in the community. And so talk to the students. Here's their representatives. And I tried as much as possible to deflect to them because they have voices. And that younger and generation we just talked yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah, they should be heard too. So I tried to do that for the vast majority because it really was theirs. You know, you've, there are no more active people than students. Students in high schools and students in universities, right? They're the ones who can make changes. They have student groups. They have black student groups, women's student groups, native student groups, like the whole gambit. And they're advocating for changes to the university that, you know, these old universities wouldn't do otherwise, but for the attention that they can bring. And look at the attention they brought to that, right? Like a lot of attention. Everyone in the media was talking about it, still talking about it. And it resulted in the name change of a whole university. Now, I have seen universities talk about things like, oh, maybe we should change the name of this meeting room or this auditorium. But how many universities do you think would change their entire name and all of the branding that goes with that? Because for people who are not in the corporate world, that's a mega, mega I was project. thinking about this when I went to email you because I, I brought up the last email exchange that we had with your Ryerson University email. And I was like, wow, that's a huge undertaking to switch even that system. Yeah. And there was, of course, a lot of resistance, right? Of course. So you yeah. think of old retired professors who are like, no, you can't change the name ever, ever, ever. Um, and then there is like some non-Native community members who are like, oh, you're just exaggerating things. You know, residential schools are in the past. Never mind that we're still finding unmarked graves. But so there was some resistance. There was some angry, super far-right white supremacist groups, right, who are super angry about that. They're making, like, tons of threats and things. So they did it, knowing that they could potentially lose some funders. 
They could potentially upset the community. They could potentially upset alumni. And I was kind of surprised they did it. They did it anyway. You know? I kind of figured they would do what most institutions do is, oh, well, let's continue to set up committees because they did community consultations. They did all of these other things and they have reports and recommendations, but they instantaneously and unanimously accepted the recommendation to change name and then proceeded to do it. And I was like, wait, wait, what, what's happening here? I'm so surprised because it, things just don't happen like that in massive institutions. You would almost call that radical for institutions. For institutions yes now obviously is everything addressed no it changes things at an institutional level but it's not like at the community level in the sense of it doesn't directly impact um water and forest fires and murder to missing and foster care and homelessness and all of those other things so those are things that i work on right but the institutional change is something that other people work on because we can't have our energy everywhere so there's other people in the institution trying to make sure that there's more Native people hired and real natives, not pretendians. I knew this would come up. Yeah, fakes that are everywhere. Oh yes, look at my T-shirt. Indigenous as. Yeah, I've got another one too. I was indigenous before Ancestry.com. <laughs> Honestly, your little one-liners are so good. You and that's why you have a merch store. By the way, hit her website. Yes. Episode notes. Yes, 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 yes. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's um. Yeah, so that's the other thing. So a lot of universities have been walking around with their head up high saying, oh, we've got lots of Native students and Native profs and Native staff. And you find out, oh, wait, you only have one real one. The rest of them are fakes. They have no Native ancestry. They don't belong to any First Nation community or Inuit land claim area or the Métis Nation. They're just like these random Métis identifiers that that's no such thing. Right. And so that's... Although I'm, I focus more on community stuff, this whole, that part of the institutional stuff, I've been putting a lot of energy As into. As you should. It's not just universities, it's also in government, but it is prolific in the arts. So anytime someone asks me to be on a panel or do a radio show with someone, I'm like, yeah, okay, tell me the name of the person so I can see if they're really a Native person because they're literally everywhere and the the ironic thing about pretendians is so one of the cultural things about native people and i can say this is about first nations and and uh, tribes in the u.s when you go somewhere to a first nation for the first time the first thing they ask you is who's your parents like who's your grandparents where are you from who are you connected to right because it's like okay i need to know your family oh yeah our families are this and that pretendians if you ask where they're from Oh, how dare you be racist? You are such a colonizer. Don't genocide me. So red flag, red flag, red flag. Or if you ask them and they're like, oh yeah, Mi'kmaq and Wollastaquay and Nipmuc and Métis and uh, Klingit. It's like, possible? It's, it's within the realm of universal possibilities. Likely? Red flag. So there's a whole bunch of those red flags. And I just want organizations to be aware of them because it hurts us. Real Native people are proud of who they are and we shouldn't have to prove who we are, but I'll haul, haul out my membership card to my First Nation any day if it means I'm going to protect jobs for other Native people. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap here, the, the last thing I'm going to ask you is to actually nominate a few women that you admire to come on the podcast. And you've mentioned some great women already. Okay, so for sure, Tanya Talaga. 
Not only is she an incredible writer and advocate, but she has her own media company, right? Oh, she's amazing. Makwa Media, and she's just producing documentaries and podcasts. And so I don't know if you've talked to her already, but I look up to her and what she's doing, what you can do with very, very little resources, for example. Um, Someone I just had on my podcast, Connie Walker. Like, the Connie Walker who won a Pulitzer Prize and a Peabody Award for a podcast. Like... One day she gets the Pulitzer, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Next day it's Peabody. I'm like, come on. <laughs> like, how many awards can you get? But she deserves it. She's been working so hard. She's been trying to make institutional change. So these are like media women that I totally look up to. If you're looking for community-based people. I would love one. Obviously, Ellen Gabriel, because she's also in the art world. She's an artist, and she goes to art festivals and things like that. So she has a different kind of media, but she also engages fully in the media. Rosanna Deerchild, who has been hosting Unreserved forever. She's on, she's off, but she's back on. Auntie Kim's friend and her bestie. Yes, exactly. And of course, Kim Wheeler, but I don't know if I'm being biased because she's with Sirius and I'm with I've Sirius. Had, and- I've had Kim Wheeler on already. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay, okay. Yeah. So Rosanna, she's cool. I mean, there's all of these like Such good awesome women, yeah. women doing so many great things. I just love them all. Too many to name, but those are some of them. Well, it was a pleasure reconnecting with you today. Thank you for all your activism and for opening a lot of minds, I think, for people in and out of your community. Well, thanks for sharing my voice and my content. And I see you on social media sharing and liking things and for lifting up the voices of other Native women too. That really means a lot. And women in general, because contrary to what listeners might think, We don't have equality yet. (laughs) So I'm going to title this episode Indigenous AF. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Visit pampalmeter.com to check out her merch. From the Land Back Tea to the Resist, Resurge, Reclaim shirt. Pam's designs on her website are about Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples coming together to protect each other and the planet. And please, browse around the different sections of her website, not only for the incredible work that she's already done, but a ton of resources for people who want to learn more about the issues that we talked about on the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Pam for her time. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.